You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring our July 2022 issue of the Journal. In this podcast, I'll focus on five of our feature articles in the Journal this month, and then I also want to just briefly summarize for you a few of the other pieces that you'll be able to see in this issue of the Journal. First, I'd like to mention a clinical and case study article, and this one's by Christopher Blackwell and Humberto Lopez Castillo, and it's titled Monthly Injectable Cabotegravir Rilpilverine to Manage HIV Infection in Adults. So this article includes a case study to illustrate the effectiveness of this medication combination in those with HIV infection. We also have three quality improvement reports in this issue of the journal, and the first one is by Kimberly Broughton-Miller and Grace Urquhart, and it's titled Improving Acute Pain Management of Trauma Patients on Medication-Assisted Therapy. As you know, there are many patients in the United States undergoing medication-assisted treatment, and pain management in these patients following any kind of trauma or surgery can be very, very difficult. And so this project aimed to improve the way that pain was managed and the extent to which it was managed in patients who are already receiving medication-assisted therapy. The next QI report I wanted to mention is by Emily Saunders and a group of colleagues, and it's titled Coaching Quality Improvement in Primary Care to Improve Hypertension Control. And this was an extensive multi-cycle quality improvement project that took place over 18 months in two different practice sites to address improvements that were needed in hypertension control. And what the authors did was add coaching as a technique in addition to medication management and follow-up with these patients to be able to realize an improved level of hypertension control. And the last project I want to mention was an interdisciplinary project, and in fact, this project is a co-publication with us and the Journal of the American Academy of PAs, and it's titled Engaging Nurse Practitioners and Physician Assistants to Improve Patient Care and Drive Productivity in a Radiology Consult Practice at a Comprehensive Cancer Center. And this is by Meyer Vararkar and colleagues. This project involved optimizing the use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants in the radiology service to improve patient management and also patient outcomes. Now I'd like to move on to our major features this month, and the first one is a quantitative research report. This one is also our CE feature for the month. It's by Jacqueline Nickpour, Marion Broom, Susan Silva, and Kelly Allen, and it's titled Patient Demographics and Clinical Characteristics influence opioid and non-opioid pain management prescriptions of primary care nurse practitioners, PAs, and physicians. The point of this article was to identify patient characteristics that were associated with whether opioids or non-opioids were prescribed, and this study took place among Veterans Affairs chronic pain patients. They were being cared for by primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs. Now, we know that evidence shows that racial and gender disparities in chronic pain management exist, including in our veteran population. Most of the existent literature has described physicians' disparities in opioid prescribing patterns, so it's pretty much unknown if prescribing disparities really exist among nurse practitioners and PAs or among prescription of non-opioid analgesic strategies. So the authors used data from the VA survey of healthcare experiences of patients, 
and outcomes included opioid and non-opioid analgesic prescriptions. Patient characteristics included race, ethnicity, gender, education level, age, and clinical characteristics such as comorbidities, self-reported health, and self-reported mental health. The authors used logistic regression to perform tests for association of patient characteristics with outcomes. The results show that patients who were white, male, age 41 to 64 years old, and with no post-secondary education had higher odds of receiving an opioid prescription, whereas patients who were black, female, and less than 65 years old had higher odds of a non-opioid prescription. Having five or more comorbidities and fair or poor self-reported health increased the odds of both opioid and non-opioid prescriptions. The conclusions were that disparities in race, gender, and educational levels significantly affect how primary care nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and physicians manage chronic pain. We can well imagine what the implications for research and practice are. The authors recommend that nurse practitioners and other primary care providers pursue training opportunities to identify and mitigate potential biases that may affect their practice, and future research should take an intersectional lens in examining the sources of chronic pain disparities. Our next feature this month is a study by Ralph Klotzbaugh, Reuben Hopwood, and Gail Spencer. It's titled, She Came to Me for Care, Why Would I Say No? Survey Results of Advanced Practice Nurses Caring for Transgender and Gender Diverse Patients. The point of this study was to describe relationships between location of practice of nurse practitioners and transgender or gender diverse, which we'll call TGD, patient care, and to identify emerging themes related to the care of TGD individuals. In terms of background, literature has recognized deficient knowledge of TGD patient needs, and this can negatively affect healthcare. Prior research on provider education has shown little progress responsive to TGD healthcare needs. So this study examined the education of family nurse practitioners providing care to TGD individuals. The methodology for this was a survey technique, and surveys were sent to 3,500 family nurse practitioners, and completed surveys were returned by 356 for, for about a 10% response rate. The results show that there were no significant differences between location of practice and TGD patient care, or between location of the provider's education and the inclusion of TGD content in the curriculum. There was statistical significance found between inclusion of TGD content and the year of graduation. Those graduating in or after 2011 from their nurse practitioner program were more likely to report receiving content on TGD care. So themes emerged in four areas related to practice, role, location, and education. And in conclusion, the study highlighted the inadequacy of curricular inclusion of TGD health needs so these findings underscored ways that family nurse practitioners could source best practices while they're providing health care to TGD individuals. These findings provide additional support for the need to educate family nurse practitioners to reduce barriers for TGD persons in accessing affirming health care. The last two features this month are articles that are pertinent to nurse practitioner education. So the first education piece I'd like to focus in on for a minute is by Kelly Kassler, Heidi Bobeck, Oralee Pittman, and Joni Tornwall. It's titled, The Effect of Asynchronous Group Discussions on Nurse Practitioner Student Debriefing Experience in Virtual Simulation. 
Well, our journal is receiving a number of manuscripts related to changes due to the COVID pandemic. And a big piece of that has to do with ways that faculty have incorporated simulation into their learning for their nurse practitioner students. And this is a good example of that. This article is about ways to incorporate discussion and debriefing following a simulation experience. So, you know, debriefing facilitates student learning of very critical concepts after you've had a simulation experience. Faculty evaluation of simulation learning outcomes is really critical, but effective practices in debriefing after virtual simulation, including the impact of some of the software-generated performance feedback and asynchronous group debriefing, we don't really understand those too well. We're kind of at the beginning edge of that. So student perceptions of two different methods of post-simulation debriefing were explored by these authors. What they did was they compared software-generated performance feedback only, so from the system, versus software-generated feedback combined with an ability to have asynchronous, faculty-facilitated online discussion based on the 3D model of debriefing. So the debriefing experience scale was used to evaluate self-reported debriefing experiences, and this took place in uh, 68 advanced practice nursing students before and after implementation of this online discussion board debriefing strategy that they used. And students did report an improved debriefing experience when simulation software generated feedback was combined with their asynchronous online discussion rather than automated software generated feedback alone. And implications for faculty are discussed in more detail in the article, but these included uh, lessons learned to support online asynchronous debriefing experiences for students and, and also how to engage students in meaningful discussions that triangulate feedback from the software, from their peers, and from their instructor. And our final feature article this month, focusing on NP education, is by Kayla Viditek, Catherine Moran, Lisa Zajak, and Richard Myers. It's titled, Changing the Trajectory of Clinical Precepting for Nurse Practitioner Students with the Development of a Preceptor Resource Network. Well, preceptors of nurse practitioner students, as we all know, can be very difficult to recruit and retain. Schools of nursing have deployed lots of incentives that aim to support preceptors. However, these incentives like conferences, webinars, and workshops don't always entice the preceptors. So the authors wanted to look into that. The purpose of their project was to enhance the overall clinical experience for both the preceptor and doctor of nursing practice, primary care, nurse practitioner students. And they wanted to do that by developing an innovative preceptor resource network, or what they call a PRN. And the PRN was designed and developed to support preceptors in rural and underserved areas especially. The network consisted of informal monthly meetings with rotating content, as well as an online repository to house resources for the preceptors. More than half of the invited preceptors did attend the meetings each month. Preceptors' feedback indicated that the meetings assisted them in their precepting or their clinical practice, and the discussions were engaging and interesting. Schools of nursing need to deploy creative, relationship-based strategies to recruit and retain preceptors for nurse practitioner students. 
The development of a preceptor resource network facilitates discussions from the preceptor's agenda rather than just the educational model or the faculty perspective. And so this is an innovative approach that's worthy of further exploration and possibly replication by other interested schools. The preceptor resource network was considered a sustainable model. It could be used in an ongoing way for preceptor support and could be used by many other universities. This concludes our features for our July issue. Thanks to all of our listeners, and be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.